It's the one thing that feels unavoidable when your team starts to grow. With more people comes more complexity. So we try to simplify some of that complexity into a neat little drawing of who sits where and who works for and with whom. But there is something fundamentally wrong with that org chart. Or rather, the way in which most people think about the org chart. It may seem pretty trivial to hear explained, but it's fundamental in how we run our businesses. And it can be the factor behind an individual, a team, or a company succeeding or failing. Welcome to the first ever episode of Org Uncharted, the podcast from Tetra, makers of knowledge management and sharing software for modern, fast-growing teams. I'm your host, Jay Akunzo. On this show, it's our goal to serve one type of individual, people who empower other people to do great work. Whether you're in a formal position of empowering others, like manager or HR or executive, or your behavior is that of a leader, regardless of title, if your career is to empower others in theirs, this is the show for you. Today, we try to address a couple simple but pretty ubiquitous problems. What is the underlying issue with the org chart? And how should we think about people organization and interaction in the workplace? To help us understand this, we meet a speaker, author, consultant, and a guy who's held a crazy number of jobs. You're not going to believe the number that this guy actually has had. And today, he is championing other champions. This is a guy who I like to think of as somebody who's taken all these ingredients that make our work chaotic, and he's thrown them into a big pot and let it cook down to a nice, rich, simple sauce that we should pour all over our business. Okay, so so that metaphor got away from me. <laughs> so let me just ask you this instead. What does it take to be a champion leader? Modern, fast-growing teams do one thing better than the rest. They empower each and every person on those teams. This is the show about the people who do that. This is Org Uncharted. On the line today, Michael Brenner, former uh, big brand executive, startup executive, now the CEO of a consulting group, Marketing Insider Group, best-selling author, global keynote speaker. Um, he's doing okay. Uh, so let's let's start here. Let's start with the problem because I want to address the problem that you spotted or that you experienced that led you to create this idea of the champion leader. So what is happening within organizations typically or what did you experience that led you down that path? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and and the pain came from personal experience. And, And, you know, at some point I just looked back and I was just like, you know, I remember being happy in my job or being happy with my boss, but never loving my job, even though I loved what I was doing. And I was just trying to figure that out. Like, why did that happen? Like, why did I love what I was doing, but not want to stay? And, you know, so that early insight was was something that was sort of like, okay, now I get what the problem is. But then I went and I felt it over the course of, you know, of 23 different roles at, at you know, 10 different companies or whatever it was. And, and I was just like, why does this situation exist? Like, why am I like an eager, you know, hopefully intelligent, um, you know, willing participant to help a company solve its problems and meet its customer needs. And yet I was absolutely miserable. <laughs> and I think I just I just decided I had committed myself to trying to figure this out. It's almost like you'd pinpointed the symptoms but hadn't reached the illness, you know? Like the things you were personally feeling were 
you know, important to, to realize, sure, but fairly obvious and easy to pick up on whether you were you or maybe the person leading you. What did it take to reach the illness? Like, how did you diagnose this problem over time? Because it is kind of a weird one. Yeah, well, the problem is the org chart. And it's, it's a tough thing. I'm cautious to say that, you know, depending on who I'm talking to. Like, if I'm talking to CEOs or senior leaders, you know, in any function inside a business or even HR folks, I might, you know, not say it that way. Mm. It's not the actual structural setup of the org chart that's the problem. It's the way we think about bureaucracy. You know, the org chart exists to show us who's above us and who's below us and who's beside us. And, you know, it actually serves as a, as a relatively efficient model for decision making, right? If you're in the military and you have to take a hill, you know, from the, from, you know, from the evil, you know, uh, uh, folks that you're, you're at war with, you need someone in command and someone right. who's going to be able to delegate authority very, very efficiently. Bureaucracies exist in that command and control structure and serve a very efficient, you know, model of decision making. They do not fit the world that we live in today. They just don't, you know, and this is true for a 50 person, a five person or a 50,000 person company that people don't want to be in any role that isn't the top of that org structure. <laughs> and so, so, you know, one simple way I can answer your question, the problem is the org chart, but you know, a, a softer way to say it is the problem is the way we think about organizational structures, the way we think about the org chart and the way that bureaucracy rears its ugly head inside organizations of every single size. Okay, so you mentioned something there that I think is really powerful, which is that way of thinking about the org chart, about people, organization, and about leadership does not fit the modern world that we live in, right? We're talking about companies that sell products and services today. Things have changed. That model doesn't work. Why? Like, what has changed? Can you give us any examples? So back in 1994, I was a year out of school, and um, you know, and I, you're younger than me, Jay. And I know a lot of times when I talk to younger folks, they roll their eyes when I bring up 1990 anything. <laughs> but, but, Easy, Grandpa. Exactly, exactly. Um, but anyway, I, you know, it's like out of school. I didn't know a thing about anything, and and I, you know, one of the things I did was I read Fast Company. I read Business Week every single week, um, and I'll never forget there was this article in Business Week or in, in Fast Company called, uh, or the title of the magazine is Brand You, and it was about a book. And, you know, it, the, 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 the facts behind it were important. The, the gist of it was that we were entering an age, and this was, again, 1994, like, the internet was really new, like, it was barely commercialized. And, you know, this, the, the concept of, we no longer associate ourselves, like, I'm not Michael Brenner, who works for Marketing Insider Group. I'm Michael Brenner, I'm the CEO of my own destiny. And that concept, that sort of self-actualization was really a shift as a Gen X, you know, kind of uh, uh, demographic was really a shift from the previous generation that was happy to say, hey, my name is Joe and I work at IBM and I'm proud to be a 30-year IBM employee. You know, those, those days just, they're over. And, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, that we don't love companies anymore. We all understand the need to be part of an organization that's doing things that we want to associate ourselves with. But it's it's about how we feel. Like in our gut, we don't associate, we don't define ourselves as being connected to an organization. We define ourselves as the leader of our own destiny. And, and, and we choose the companies that we want to be associated with as customers and as employees. And so that's right. what I think has changed dramatically from, you know, and for me, the, the light bulb kind of went off then because I read that article. I'm like, yes, this is exactly how I feel. 
And then I spent 23 years in organizations that, that never, that seemed to have never read that article, learned that concept, or certainly didn't buy into it. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're talking about a small subset of the population here, but I think a lot of us, you know, I'm, I'm in my thirties, I'm a millennial. I've always worked in tech. I've never felt in danger of not being able to get a job. So, you know, personally, I've never felt the need to cling to one company. Uh, the internet has gotten rid of a lot of gatekeepers. You know, as a writer, as someone who's done audio, I would have to have been a, a journalist or, you know, in radio. Now I can just blog and podcast and no one's telling me don't do it or you can't. And, you know, you can invent your own career in many ways if you understand the way of the internet, the modern digital technology mm-hmm. that we have at our disposal. Um, you know, my wife is in academia and I joke that she has a paint by numbers career. Yeah. It's very laid out for her, whereas I have a blank canvas career. You know, if I don't like the canvas I'm painting now, I'll just I'll start a new one. I don't know. So so regardless of, of my own personal experience, what I'm curious about is if that is a larger trend, how does that change how leaders work with their teams? It, well, I think the shift that's taken place from a leadership perspective, and this you know is a broad sort of description, but it's true everywhere, is that the job of the leader is no longer to sit in that hierarchical bureaucracy and tell people what to do. Now there are even thirty-year-olds, and there's even twenty-year-olds who think that once they get to a you know senior director or VP, that that's what their job is because because they've learned even in their young young professional lives. From, you know, unfortunately from organizations that haven't grasped this new age that we're in, um, that that's what leadership is. That's not what leadership is. In fact, leadership, I think, is often the opposite of that. It's not telling people what to do. It's listening from your team what they think you should do. And, and so, you know, this is a total 180 degree change in direction for what it means to be a leader. And we see, I think, you know, companies, living on the spectrum from getting it to completely clueless when it comes to this change in leadership. Okay, so talking to you now, the listener, as part of Org Uncharted, we're going to splice in these little stories and stats and insights all about people who try to empower other people and all the problems that we encounter when we do that. Um, These things will come from the team behind this show, the, the team at Tetra. I mentioned before, they make knowledge management and sharing software, and they specifically focus their time and efforts on those who are empowering others on fast-growing teams. Now, obviously, this show is part of their marketing. I mean, of course it is. Let's be adults here. We know that. But they also see a ton of the problems facing people like us, people who lead others, people who want others to do their best work. And all of this started with a really simple, but some might say audacious idea from their co-founders. Here's Tetra CEO, Andy Cook. I mean, the thing that really fires me up about why we chose this market is imagine everyone was just allowed to do great work and they didn't have to deal with organizational charts. They didn't have to go ask their boss for permission. They didn't have to deal with bureaucracy. When they come up with a way to do something even slightly better, they could just do it. And they didn't have to go get their boss's permission and their boss didn't squash the idea down and they just gave up. And that's the thing that excites me about Tetra is a world where everyone is just allowed to do great work and incrementally improve their organization little by little by little. And then all those improvements compound into one massive improvement over time. Okay, so later in the show, the simple aspiration that Andy has for people in their jobs. And I'm sure that we all share this aspiration too. We'll talk a little bit about how that aspiration, how this desire that we have to empower others, how that affects the individual, seems obvious, but also how it affects a results-driven 
boss, and company. That's later in the episode. For now, let's get back to my conversation with Michael Brenner. Okay, just to give people a sense of your perspective, how many total jobs have you had again? So I've had, I've had 53 jobs now. 53, five, three. Five, three. It's a little unfair for me to say that. I, you know, I include like the Paperboy was my first job, actually, the yeah. Paperboy. And 22 of those jobs happened before I graduated college. You know, and so it was... T- take us through some. Yeah, so I was paperboy, uh, worked at Pizza Hut. I worked, um, I was the, the concession stand, you know, sort of checkout guy at my, at my local, you know, community pool. I mowed lawns for half my neighborhood. I, um, babysat for my cousins. Uh, <laughs> I mean, these are, these are all paying jobs, but you know, it was the, the variety of stuff that I did. Yeah. Well, how about post-grad, you know, the quote unquote working world? Yeah. So then post-grad, um, first job was Enterprise Rent-A-Car, where I picked people up, as you would expect, for about six months. I think I did that. Then I was a sales professional uh, for uh, in for different sort of audiences inside one company. Then I moved into marketing. Um, I was a product marketer, an event marketer, a corporate marketer. Um, that's all in my first... My first company, I think I had one, two, three, four, probably six jobs. That, that, so I, I mentioned it was 1993 when I graduated, 1994 when I started at Nielsen, where I was, you know, two sales roles and three marketing roles, basically. And I remember after the end of 12 months, my first 12 months, I had seven different managers. And it was the, it was the Al Dunlop age of corporate America. They called him Chainsaw Al. It was when like layoffs were cool. And so <laughs> we, Ugh. we went through six, I think six rounds of layoffs in 1994. And, you know, that caused me to have all these different managers. It was crazy. I mean, in two years, I think I had 13 different direct managers that I reported to. Wow. And so, you know, that was a fun, <laughs> I mean, it was great for me because what happened was like, I received battlefield promotions. Like I looked around, no one else else was left standing. And so they said, Hey, you're now senior director or whatever. Oh man. <laughs> it's, promoted. it's like, excellent. It's, but wait, I've only promoted because everyone else is no longer here. So it was, you know, it was interesting. But um, well, yeah, what so, was the most number of people that ever reported directly to you when you worked in all these traditional org charts? Um, gosh, let's see. I think I had I had about thirteen people reporting to me when I was at SAP. Oh, thirteen! Wow. And that was probably five too many. Like eight, eight felt like a good number. And you know, it was awesome for me because I used it as a test bed to test out uh, my philosophy, which was you know inverting the traditional role of leadership and encouraging my team. No, you know, number one, I kind of saw myself as a mentor to every one of them, even the ones that didn't ask me to be or even maybe want me to be a mentor. I mean, I just sort of, I defined myself as that because I wanted that to be like the gravitas that I, that I approached every situation with, you know, and sometimes that took the form of being, you know, like a therapist. And I mean, I've had, I had employees who, you know, had their boyfriend break up with them and they were crying to me over coffee, you know, and, and I was, I actually really loved being, you know, not that I was coddling my employees, but being trusted as an advisor, even at a personal level with some of my employees. So, you know, that was one. And the, the other was, like I said, I didn't tell people what to do. I told them the direction that our department needed to go and the, the goals that we needed to achieve. You know, I personally tried to um, underscore the importance of annual performance reviews. I think any company that does those should be blown up. 
I just don't see the value in asking people once a year how they did. I tried to get rid of one-on-ones and I, I you know, always hated when managers asked me for one-on-ones, but I did have weekly check-ins and the weekly check-in wasn't, hey, you tell me what you did. It was, tell me how you're doing. Tell me how I'm doing and tell me how I can help you achieve what you're trying to get done. It was, you know, again, I was trying to see each employee on my team as, as the CEO of their own destiny and, you know, and what I found, it's, it's amazing. I'm an optimist, but what I found was that that for the large part, almost every single person that worked for me that I was successfully implementing that approach did bigger and better things than they had ever done, were happier in their job than they ever, you know, were before, or maybe since, you know, and I've gotten that feedback from folks that, you know, that, that they wish that, that leadership took that model, um, you know, to heart and, and that the changes inside organizations started to take place that really encouraged that kind of leadership approach. So what is the champion leader that you've been uh, speaking about on stages and writing about and, and researching? What is the champion leader? Basically, the talk track is like this, right? So digital has changed, really, it's disrupted everything. And I'm going back, you know, to the beginning of, of you know, the internet and and how digital technology has really changed the world. We, you know, if you look at Edelman's trust barometer, we don't we don't listen to politicians anymore. We don't listen to CEOs anymore. We don't listen to the media or trust the media anymore. We listen to people like us. We listen to each other. We're now all the most, you know, important source of information and authority and trust the news um, for each other than any other source. So digital has changed the world. There's no question about that. The impact it's had on companies is that companies no longer compete on product and service and price. They compete on experience, that people pay more to walk into Starbucks and feel that they're getting the same consistent experience that they got the day before when they walked into Starbucks. And and people buy from Amazon because Amazon provides a, an experience like unlike no other retailer where you get, you know, your stuff within two days for free and they tell you what other people bought that bought the stuff. You, you know, we all know what experiences are all about. The only way a company can deliver on that is to have happy and engaged and, and, and really thriving in many ways employees. So, you know, we talked about the org chart and I tried to answer this question, like, how do we, how do companies transform and really start to set up cultures where these, you know, leaders exist that are really driving happy, engaged employees? And so I, I came up with this concept called the champion leader. It's the, the champion leader basically is one who encourages the ideas of their employees over delegating and directing the tasks of their employees. That's a champion leader. A champion leader, you know, sees their role as, as fulfilling on the mission of the company. You know, hopefully it's some higher purpose and not just sell more products and attracting and retaining you know, highly developed and engaged employees. And and so that's what a champion leader does. The the way that, you know, the way that I advise companies to do that is just is to simply ask, uh, you know, ask employees, does your manager encourage your ideas, new ideas from you and your team? And the results we've seen with the companies I've tested this with has been dramatic and almost, almost immediate. Because when you ask your employee base to identify how well leaders are encouraging new ideas, leaders get the message immediately. <laughs> Every manager inside a company is like, "Oh shit, I better, I better encourage some new ideas today." <laughs> you know, but it also, it also tells employees like, "Hey, your ideas are valuable, and we're not going to tell you you have to." present new ideas. And I've seen companies that do that. Like every new, every employee needs to come up with three new ideas. That doesn't work either. Mm. No, when you, when you ask employees to rate their managers on how well they encourage new ideas, it tells 
in a really subtle but powerful way, employees, you know, we want you to share what you think is innovative or, or is going to solve a customer problem or a, you know, or a company problem. Um, and so the impact is dramatic and almost, you know, almost like I said, you know, overnight. And, yeah. and it, and it drives, you know, that employee engagement, it, it, it certainly impacts employee engagement over anything else. That employee engagement drives increases in customer, you know, customer satisfaction and, and retention, and that delivers profit. And that really is the, the end game. As you were talking, I just kept coming back to the same phrase in my head, which was like, don't obsess over having the answer as a leader, but get really great at knowing how to find the answer, right? Don't have the answer, know how to find the answer. And I think we have this image in our heads of these these leaders that you know, they sit atop the org chart, so to speak, and then they, uh, they have the answers and they delegate the solutions on down. And, you know, you went right to, if you're a leader, ask questions of your team, ask questions of your team that sees customer pain and, and sits in front of customers all day, ask questions of your team about their career aspirations. Like that, that is to me, the hallmark of a good leader. It's not that you're the expert, you're an investigator. And what do investigators do? They root out answers by asking questions and following clues and pulling on threads of curiosity, right? But that's not how we at all envision this idea of a leader today. It's just like built on an old mm-hmm. dying way that we've been raised on what leaders should look like. Yeah. So. yeah I mean, it's, it's like counterintuitive to what we've learned, but it's completely intuitive to the, to the human situation. And, and what I mean by that is like, I'm a father of four kids. My job is not to tell my kids what to do. My, my, you know, part of my job with my, my partner and wife is, is to provide a safe, you know, environment for our kids to grow up with and, and thrive. And that's all leaders need to do. So, you know, there's this natural business instinct to want to just tell people what to do. And I'm a leader, so you need to listen to me. But our human sort of situation is completely the opposite. It's no, create a safe environment for the smart people that your company is trying, is, you know, is trying to, to attract and retain and let them do what they want to do. Let them do what they love. Let them do what they, let them solve the problems that they're seeing every single day. They're the experts. Help, you know, help encourage and, and activate them, their passions, their expertise, and, and, and then they'll become happy and they will thrive and then you're going to be more successful. So, you know, it's in one sense counterintuitive, in another sense, it's completely natural. What's one thing that a lot of leaders get wrong? And what's one thing that they can start to do in order to become a champion leader in their own organization, or maybe even create a culture where everybody acts like a champion leader, you know, defending and supporting and championing others' ideas? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Like what managers typically do poorly is they delegate tasks. They say, your job is to screw that nut into that screw. And you know what? That's the last thing, uh, like I said, unless you're building a car, uh, you know, for Ford, that's, you know, and that job's being done by robots anyway. You know, it, it's, that's the thing that most managers do very poorly. They manage via tasks. They manage via, you know, action items and lists of, you know, project plans um, because they think that success is checking the box. That's the biggest mistake that, that I think, you know, managers make both new and experienced. The one thing that I think if you're, you know, if you're a young leader at a fast growing company or you're, you know, you're 70 years old and, and you're just trying to figure out how to manage the, the, you know, today's workforce, the one thing, it doesn't matter, I think, what level in the organization you're at, define a customer centric, an audience centric, a, you know, some sort of a, a, a external mission statement that defines the value that you give. And I often tell like CEOs and entrepreneurs at startups, it's, it's your founding story. Like, 
No one said, I'm going to develop a widget because widgets are cool. People see a need. Every Almost every company that exists in the world, I, I think every company that exists in the world, there was a need that needed to be filled or someone saw you know an opportunity to fill and they went and filled it. And so talk about the need and then talk about how you solve the need. So no matter where you sit in an organization, I think defining the sort of this is how we fit in the grand scheme of solving a customer problem. I mean, this is one of those like simple but hard things, right? It's It's so breathtakingly simple. Businesses exist for one reason and one reason alone, which is to solve a problem. Or maybe if you're just something, you know, pure joy like candy or whatever, it's to fulfill a desire. So solve a problem or fulfill a desire for the customer. And if you do that insanely well, everything else tends to get met. You know, your employees get happier, your uh, revenues, your profits, your stakeholders, Wall Street, like all the stuff we serve, it tends to be short-term goals, the things right in front of our face. But the foundation, the founding story of all these companies is there was a need. We started this company to fulfill that need. And, you know, I I exclusively have worked for tech companies and and almost all of them have been startups or, you know, the the venture capital firm I worked for in Nextview was a young VC, about five years old. So the biggest company I worked for was Google. And at 20,000 people, even they were just hammering home this idea of mission, this idea of the reason they exist was to solve a problem to or for uh, customers. That's why they that's why they existed. They always asked what's in it for the customer, which which I know you you have kind of a ridiculous acronym for what's in it for the customer. <laughs> it's Wistica. It's not catching on. I think I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to retire it. Um, yeah, wait, 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 what is it? Wistica? So it's what's in it for the and then there's three C's. So what's in it for the customer? What's in it for the colleague? And what's in it for the company? And, you know, basically what I found is that is that organizations that put their customer at the center with a mission statement and really put their values on customer centricity, not just, you know, not just pretty words on a wall, but they actually live it. Then those companies, what they find is, well, if we really want to solve customer problems, they realize they need to engage their employees. And so every employee needs to ask, how can I help my colleague? How can I help, you know, encourage my, my, you know, not, not the people above me or below me, but everybody in the organization, how can I help them all achieve happiness and satisfaction in their career by helping them solve the problems they're trying to solve in, you know, all in the same direction of solving a customer, you know, sort of an issue. And and the companies that do that, and there's study after study, I mean, I talk about Jim Stengel's Grow, and I talk about uh, the, the the service profit chain, which is a book that I read back in the 90s. Like there's, there's study after study shows that companies that focus on employee satisfaction with customer-centric mission statements outperform their peers by not factors of five or factors of, 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 you know, 10 or even 100, but by 300, 400, 500%. Whether you look at revenue, customer retention, lifetime value, or stock price. I mean, you can take any measure of value and, and every study shows that highly engaged employed workforces deliver happy, satisfied, and long staying customers that spend more money and the stock prices and the value of those companies, you know, is dramatically higher. And so, It makes sense. You know, it's just the human nature that gets in the way. Yeah, isn't that funny? Doing the right thing is great because it is the right thing. And it's also really great for business. Wow, shocking. Yeah. Now here's more from Andy Cook, CEO of Tetra, on what he believes about going to work and why both the individual and the company can benefit when leaders stop blocking people from trying stuff. The company benefits because they're able to unleash the potential and creativity of all the individuals in the organization to improve the organization based on their own experiences and their own insights into how it can actually be improved. And the individual 
benefits because they're able to learn more and they're able to grow and they're able to try things and experiment and adapt and improve their career over time and basically get better as a human being. And the byproduct of that is they don't hate going to work every day. And how would you feel if you were able to push that world forward? At the end of the day, you look back, you're like, there's all these organizations that actually do operate that way. At that point, how do you feel? Good. <laughs> I mean, that's a lame answer. I think my, my biggest fear, or one of my biggest fears as an individual would be to just be working for working's sake and to go in and punch the clock every day. And so on the flip side, if, if we markedly improved thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people's lives where they spend the majority of their day at work, about eight hours a day, which is a third of your day, we made that better, I think that would be amazing. You'll hear more from Andy and others at Tetra as we release more episodes of the show. We'll talk about all kinds of things, both things that you may have thought of, like why so many people get their ideas blocked and how companies are becoming modern instead of traditional in the way they operate, and some things that you haven't thought of, like Theseus's ship. Yeah, that's a good one. In the meantime, you can learn more about Tetra and their wiki software at tetra.co. That's tetra with two T's. Co. All right, so there's probably a couple of problems that people are facing. One might be specific to a startup or small business and one to everybody, certainly a lot of leaders at larger companies. So the first is if I'm at a startup, I'm nodding vigorously to everything you're saying. And I'm like, yep, this is going to be the company that actually maintains customer centricity as it scales. That other stuff won't get in the way. I'm, sh- I'm sure of it, right? And so to do that, the founder or the leader in that situation has to continually evangelize and educate people's ideas, you know, from the from the ground up, from the customer's side of things into the company. They have to be a champion leader. In the large organization or the organization that's fast scaling, maybe there's an executive that's now sitting in meetings with peer level executives and they have to champion other people's ideas who aren't in the room in that room. Either way, I think the problem now is like you say champion leader, but it's championing people's ideas to someone else. Mm-hmm. So talk about that part, you know, to whom and how. Well, and that's why I think it's about thinking of the organization and the org chart differently. And, and you know, so, you know, when I talk to folks, I'm like, hey, you know, do this inside your own organization, wherever you have a scope of control, you know, t- t- take this this idea of champion leadership um, just within your team. Ideally, it's, it happens from the CEO down, but it doesn't have to happen, you know, just at the CEO level. The, the, but what you're talking about is just a basic level of respect, right? It's like, and, and it's funny, like I worked in companies where, you know, they hired what I called smart assholes. It, they were really bright people who seemed to get ahead because they were mean, <laughs> because they challenged, because they basically challenged any idea that wasn't there. Yeah. And that's what I mean by and and so you know there has to be a mechanism inside a company that flips that and whether it's whether it's hey we respect other people you know i think we're seeing a lot in the news about a lack of respect on a number of levels for people inside organizations you know in all kinds of ways and and so it starts with just basic human decency and respect um ideally it would be hey our culture is one of encouraging ideas and innovation from wherever they may come from. And, and if that value stand, you know, if that's the thing written on the wall, then, you know, an executive is going to be able to stand up for his colleagues uh, or team's ideas in front of a peer 
because that's a value of the company. If it's not a value of the company, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, you know, some people ask me like, Hey, I work in a traditional, you know, company run by old white guys. And, and, you know, what should I do? I'm like, leave, you know, it's, it's, it's not yeah. going to change unless it happens from both the top and the bottom. It can't be HR driven. You know, HR needs the leadership team to get on board. And that's why, you know, I talk to people, I say, Hey, start a pilot, pilot this inside your team, you know, identify some pre and post, you know, activities where you can demonstrate the, the massive impacts that you're having and then go pitch it to other teams and then go pitch that to bigger teams and then go take it to HR and then go present that to your CEO. And, you know, I usually tell a couple of stories when I speak in public of folks who've done this and, you know, they've gone on to, you know, they've changed their entire companies. They've, they've found satisfaction in their career. They've, they've, you know, they've just been dramatically transformational figures, um, you know, in many different realms. And so, um, it takes some courage. I will give you that. It takes, it takes some courage. But, you know, to me, I've always thought like, Hey, I just couldn't be a blind, you know, lemming jumping off a cliff because somebody told me to. And there's lots of folks in organizations that are, you know, just happy to collect a paycheck and do what they're told. If you're one of those folks, this message is not for you. If you're someone who wants to actually be happy and engaged in your career, then this is the only way. So, I mean, I mean, why are you so fired up about this? There are, I think, leaders that, it, you know, not at their own fault have learned the wrong, you know, the opposite way of how to be an effective leader. I've seen, you know, I've seen and been a part of, uh, without naming names, you know, teams that were not just miserable, but teams, you know, in, individuals that were depressed, people that, you know, showed up to work and felt like they lost their soul on the, on the, you know, the walk from the parking lot or, or the train stop. That's what fires me up is that, you know, that there are plenty of folks who found, you know, kind of flow, if you will, in their careers and in, inside even the most mundane organizations, simply because they're enabled and, and encouraged and allowed to, to kind of solve the problems that they see and, and in the way that they think they can solve it. And it's just, you know, the impact on, on, you know, on, um, quality of life for those kind of people is dramatic. And so, yeah, I'm fired up because, I just hate to see people who are, you know, like lobotomized at work <laughs> and and the potential for what they can deliver and the innovation that, that every one of us can bring. You know, I always say, you know, we're all leaders. We're all, you know, we all have the opportunity to dramatically transform our companies, the lives of our customers, the, you know, even, even our teams and our colleagues, you know, around the organization. I also say you don't have to like your team either. You don't have to actually, <laughs> you don't have to actually like the people you work with. But but we could all agree that hey if if I encourage people's ideas across my team and they also in turn then encourage mine that's a better environment for everybody even if you don't like the people <laughs> you know so you don't have to like people just just value put value uh, behind this this concept of just encouraging you know what they have to say or what they think you know is a great way to solve a problem. This show is for above all else, people who empower other people. That is their jobs, that is their careers, that is their passion in whatever role, whatever department, people who empower other people. And and the champion leader certainly is that. You also talk about as part of the champion leader, this idea, you have this phrase you say, which is culture is the new mandate. What does that mean? If you sit inside an organization that let's say it's traditional, you know, some people use that word to mean, you know, shitty. <laughs> it's not a lot to use that word. Like people say, I live, I work in a traditional culture. It means that it stinks to work there. Yeah, yeah. You know, or they say my boss is difficult to present to. That's code. That's code for you know my boss is a jerk. And 
you know, we all we all have either we know people, um, you know, who who are in those situations or or um, you know, or we've been that person. And so, culture is a new mandate for everybody because if you sit inside a culture that's that's not seeing the value of you know of innovation. Um, it's not seeing the writing on the wall on the wall that a company that isn't innovating is dying a slow death or or fast, you know, depending on the industry. You know, a company that doesn't put culture at the center is losing their best employees. A company that doesn't put culture at the center um, has miserable employees in general, and miserable employees don't just like not work as well as they could. They, you know, and Gallup research shows this. They actively sabotage the objectives of the company. Like, so if you don't focus on culture, if it's not, if you don't see it as a mandate. Then you're accepting your ultimate demise as a as in your career and for your company, and, and so I don't see it as anything other than a, than a mandate. Big thanks to my guest today, Michael Brenner. You can find his writing about the champion leader and his Twitter handle in the show notes, or give him a shout right now at Brenner Michael. Org Uncharted is the official podcast of Tetra, and Tetra's blog is something you might be interested in checking out. It's called Culture Codes, and on the homepage of this blog are all kinds of culture decks and employee handbooks for some of the most successful brands today. Companies like Netflix, Google, HubSpot, Spotify, you name it. Uh, Even NASA appears on Culture Codes. So go to the website culturecodes.co to learn more and subscribe there, culturecodes.co. This show is a production of Unthinkable Media. Once again, I'm Jay Akunzo. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks on the next episode of Org Uncharted. Uncharted.